scripture reading this morning is Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Good morning. I brought up here with me something you're probably familiar with. One second. All right. That's odd. I don't know why it's not switching. Oh, there it goes. Hopefully it doesn't go all the way through the end of the slides. Okay. So I brought up here with me something you're probably familiar with. I have up here a power strip, and then I also have a phone charger cord. Okay, this is for cell phones. Okay, I think most of us are familiar with how these cords work, right? So this end, the small end, goes into the phone, and then the other end is a USB port or plug. Okay, now you may have noticed this does not go into a normal outlet, right? It doesn't go into the three prongs or the two prongs. It, this is for computers. So why would they build a phone charger cord with, that, that doesn't go into a wall? Right? Have you ever wondered that? <laughs> well, I think because it can be very adaptable. You can plug it into your computer, but also you can put any kind of adapter on the end of this. Therefore, you can plug it into your car if you have a car adapter. Or you could plug it into the wall with one of these, okay? You wouldn't believe how many of these little cubes I have in my house, okay? Maybe you're like me and you collect them on accident, okay? Because every time you buy a new phone, you get one of these, most likely, okay? And what this does, this is an adapter. It's a go-between. You plug the phone charger cord into it. Therefore, see, it has the normal-looking plug on the end. Therefore, you can actually plug it in to the power strip or into the wall, right? Now, I love the way they do this because, again, you can plug any adapter in there. So you can plug it in the car or whatever else, or you can go without the adapter, plug it in your computer. But if you lose one of these, you're out of luck, aren't you? You might have a hard time uh, because we need these. And that I know Carissa and I fight over these sometimes. Because you have to have your little adapter if you're going to plug your phone into the wall. And obviously, we need our phones to just survive, right? So, this is an adapter. It's a go-between. So, let's take these three items and think of it as a metaphor for a moment, okay? Let's pretend that we are this phone charger cord. Let's pretend 
just for a moment, that this power strip represents God. His presence. We want to plug in to God, right? We want to be a part of His presence. We want to associate with Him. We want to be like Him. We want Him to be with us. We want to plug in to God, right? But we can't. There's something missing here, right? We can't plug into God because we're sinful. We have lost that chance. We've blown it. And therefore, we are in a fallen state and we can't, we can't enter the presence of God unless we have a go-between, unless we have a mediator, right? We as humans need a mediator in order to plug into God. That's the only way it's possible. Okay? Humans need a go-between. They need someone there to bring us into the presence of God. They needed it, or we need it today. They also needed it all the way back in the time of the Exodus. And guess who the mediator was during the time of the Exodus? Moses. Moses was the mediator between God and men. Or I should say between God and the people of Israel. He was the mediator. Now, the mediator for Israel would change over time, right? It became the priests and the high priests who could only enter into the holy place of the tabernacle, the most holy place, once a year on the Day of Atonement, and they could enter into the presence of God only if they'd cleansed themselves and only with a sacrifice, right? There were all sorts of buffers in the way, but before the tabernacle was built, before the priesthood was established, Moses was the go-between. He was the mediator between the people of Israel and God. So let's talk about that. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We've been going through the book of Exodus this year. We've preached through 32 chapters of this amazing book. We've seen some incredible events, haven't we? We've seen the evil of Pharaoh, him trying to murder Moses, uh, really try, by him trying to murder and take care of the Israelite problem, right, by killing all of the boys. And then we, we saw him, Moses, protected in a basket in the Nile. He was then found in that basket and raised in the king's household as a king's son, very ironically and very perfectly, right, setting up for the story that comes later. But then there's a snag, at least in Moses' mind, where he murders an Egyptian slave master and he's found out for it and he has to go on the run. And he has to start over with his life in Midian. And when he's, when he's done that, he's found a new family, he thinks he's going to settle down. And then one of the critical junctions in the story takes place in Exodus chapter 3 when God calls him from the burning bush. God tells him on Mount Horeb, you're going to go down to Egypt, you're going to take my people, and you're going to lead them in an exodus. They're going to escape through my power, God says. He says, you're going to go down, you're going to lead them out. And that's exactly what happens in one of the most epic accounts in all of Scripture. Right? We have the ten plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, and then the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, that very same place. And then we also have 
the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant, where the people enter into a contract with God, into a relationship with God. And Moses is the one who sprinkles that blood. He is, again, the mediator. He is the go-between in this covenant that's taking place. But then last week, Richard took us through a story that put all of that into jeopardy. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for a while. The people get antsy. They start demanding from Aaron. And in a fatal error, Aaron takes the earrings from the people, their jewelry, melts it down, and he crafts a golden calf, an idol. Therefore, God's wrath is kindled against them. And he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start over with you. But Moses, in a great act of mediation, as an intercessor, he requests and he pleads with God and he convinces God not to destroy the people. And now we're left wondering what happens next. God hasn't destroyed the people. Moses went down from the mountain and inflicted his own punishment upon the people. Now we're left wondering, okay, the dust is settled. What's going to happen next? Well, wonder no longer. Let's read chapter 33, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So if we were reading this story for the first time, this might be the point where we sigh in relief. Right? Israel has made a huge blunder, and we're thinking, oh no, they're either going to get wiped out, or maybe they're they're not going to get the promised land after all. But now it seems like everything's back to normal. Right? We're back on track. Okay, that was a, you know, we kind of went off the trail for a second, but now we're back on track. God is saying we're going to resume the journey. In fact, the heading in my Bible on this chapter says the journey resumed. And so we might think, okay, whew, I'm glad we got out of that. But if you were paying particularly close attention to these two verses, you might have noticed a few troubling signs. First of all, in verse 1, God doesn't call them my people. He doesn't call them his people. He calls them the people. There's a difference there between how he's been speaking of them in the past and how he speaks of them now. He calls them the people. And he says, the people you, Moses, brought out of the land of Egypt. Now we know it was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And God has repeated that phrase over and over again. We, we saw it especially when he went over the Ten Commandments. He started by saying, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So why all of a sudden is there distance here? Why is God all of a sudden saying, yeah, Moses, you brought them up? Well, it, to me, it reminds me of parents when their child does something wrong. And they say, come get your child, right? Now, let's pretend for just a moment that, that Luke could ever do anything that would make me upset with him. Okay, just for a moment, I know it's outside the realm of possibility, but let's just pretend for a moment that Luke does something that Carissa and I don't appreciate. We may be tempted, either one of us, to say to the other, come get your son. Because he's not my son when he's doing bad things, right? He's only our son when he's a good, when he's a good boy, right? Or my son. That's kind of the impression I'm getting from the way God is using these pronouns here. He's saying, no... 
you brought them up. These are the people, not my people. And then in verse 2, he again is very impersonal when in the past he's been personal. He says, I'm going to send an angel. In the past he said, my angel. Now there are a lot of scholars who believe that my angel, the angel of the Lord, is some kind of pre-incarnate Jesus before he became man. Uh, We're not going to get into any of that. But at the very least, my angel was representative of the very presence of God. But now he says, an angel. And the idea is that he's sending just any old angel. I know, angels are great, right? But they cannot compare to the presence of God. Which leads us to verse 3, where God really, he drops the bomb. In verse 3, he says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Wow. (laughs) God says, Yeah, you're still going to get the land, but I'm not going with you. God uses the phrase, I will not be in your midst. This is a repetition of a phrase used in previous chapters when talking about the building of the tabernacle. In other words, he, he told the people in chapter 25, you're going to build the tabernacle and I will be therefore be in your midst. Now he's saying, I'm not going to be in your midst. So at the very least, this means that the plans for the tabernacle are now out the window. God's no longer going to be in this sanctuary at the center of camp, right? He's no longer going to be in their presence. They're going to go up to the land. They still have their tickets. They're still going to make it, but God has canceled his reservation. God will not be going with them. Why? Well, he tells them, because I might kill you on the way. Now, this doesn't imply that God has a temper that he can't control, right? This is not saying that he might lose his cool. But he is a perfect, just God. And he must respond perfectly and justly to sin. And so therefore, him staying behind is really for their own protection. He knows they're an obstinate people. He knows they're going to sin. And he's, and he's saying, I, you, know, you might sin and I would have to judge you. So I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go in your midst. No wonder the people respond in mourning. Over the next several verses... It tells us that they were, they were weeping, they were mourning, they were so sad that they took off their ornaments or their jewelry. I think that that's an outward sign of repentance, not only because they're sacrificing their wealth right, and their physical possessions, but also because I think this jewelry represents the idol they had just made. Right? What was the gold used, or where did Aaron get the gold to build the calf? We got it from their jewelry, right? So now the text tells us they take off their jewelry and the, the, the way the words are used tells us that they took it off and they never put it back on. In other words, from this point in the journey onward, they don't wear, the, they don't wear this jewelry anymore. So it seems to me that they're, they're actually truly sorry for what they've done. This is a true act of repentance. They, they, they're not happy with what they've done and they're showing it. However, that doesn't mean they'll get anything from the from this sorrow, right? What will they get from being sorry? 
nothing. It's too late. Or is it? In the next few verses, verses 7 through 11, uh, which were just read to us, we're given a description of what's called the tent of meeting. And later on, the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting, but this is pre-tabernacle. This is, a, this is Moses' tent that he sets up outside of camp, as the text tells us. And this, camp, this, this tent would be set up well outside of camp, the text tells us. Well outside. Not in the middle of the camp. Well outside of camp. It had to be. And if it was well outside of camp, then Moses could enter into it only while all the rest of the people aren't there. Did you, did you catch that in the, in, the, in the way the text was read? All the people had to wait outside their tent and watch as God approached this, t- or excuse me, as Moses approached this tent of meeting and he entered inside and then God would come down in a cloud and the people would watch. Now some scholars, skeptic scholars I'd say, have looked at this description and said it's put in there randomly, right? It's like a breaking up of the story. Why is it there? I don't think it's random at all. I think this is the text setting the scene for the conversation that we're about to read. So imagine with me for a moment that you're one of the people of Israel and you know you've blown it. You know that God has declared He's not coming with you and you're devastated by this fact. And you're waiting outside your tent and you're watching as Moses steps across the plain and goes to the tent of meeting. You watch as Moses disappears inside the tent and the pillar of the cloud comes down and you know in that moment that Moses is speaking to God Almighty on your behalf. Just imagine that feeling. This is one of the things that makes Moses so special. Moses is the go-between. He is the mediator and in this moment he is speaking to the creator of the universe on behalf of of the people. So let's see what he says. What arguments do you bring before God? Well, let's see what he says. Starting in verse 12. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses starts off by saying, see here, God. Your version, your translation probably says see, but the original language, that's kind of the indication here. He's he's actually in our minds, is being kind of bold, right? He's saying, see here, God, you told me that you'd be with me. You told me you'd come up with me. And he's saying, see here, how am I supposed to do the, complete the task that you've put me on without your presence, without your help, without you guiding me and teaching me your ways? I love how much Moses has changed up to this point in the story. So all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, when he was called... I think his main problem in that account was that he thought it was all about him and all, uh, all about his own talents, right? God tells him, you're going to go down to the land of Egypt and you're going to take these people out. And Moses' response then was to say, 
well, who are you? Right? And, who, and then he says, who am I? And that was his main point. He says, I'm not eloquent. Who am I? Who am I to persuade anyone? He says, I'm not eloquent. God tells him, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. I'll give you the words. And I think up to this point in the story, Moses finally gets it. He's witnessed the power of God. You know, at first he thought, I'm not good enough to get the people out. But now he realizes it's not about how good he is. It's about how great God is. And so Moses, in this moment, went all the way back when he was first called. He said, I can't do this. Now he's saying, I can do this, but only if you're with me. Only if you're with me, Lord. And that's, in essence, what he's requesting here, that God would be with him. And he mentions, before, before God can reply, he also mentions the people. He says, and remember, the people, these are your people. Don't call them the people, call them your people. Now look at God's response. Verse 14. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will, go, and I will give you rest. Hey, he did it, right? He convinced him. Not exactly. I've harped on this before, but it, it can definitely use explaining again. In English, we do not have a distinction between the singular you and the plural you. Unless you're in the South, where they use the word y'all, right? So, here we are, and we might be tempted, reading the English translation, we might be tempted to think that the problem is solved. They God has said, okay, I will be with you. My presence will go with you. But no, he's actually speaking in the singular. In other words, he's saying, Moses, my presence will go with you, Moses. My presence will be singularly with you, and I will give you rest. Which is why Moses responds in the next verse by not being pleased with this answer. God is saying, I will be with you, Moses. I'll, I'll make sure you know what to do. I'll make sure you are able to complete your task. I'll be there to teach, you, to teach you my ways. But I'm not going to dwell amongst the people. You can have this tent that goes all the way outside of camp and you can walk up to it. And as long, I can, you know, we can be face to face, as the text says, but I'm not going to be near the people. So Moses, he's not happy with this response. It's not enough. Look at what he says, the next verse. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Now notice, first of all, that Moses says, Okay, stop separating me from the people. I'm going to start speaking in the terms us. And then he clarifies, I and the people. How, he says, how would we be distinguished from the rest of the people on the earth if your presence is not with us? That's a good question. Because what is it that distinguishes the people of Israel? It's not their wealth. Other countries have more treasure. It's not their land. They don't have the land yet. It's not their culture. They just came from slavery in another culture. The only thing that sets them apart, the only thing that makes them special, is it's certainly not how good they are, right? They can't even follow the most basic commandments. 
The only thing that makes them special is their relationship with God, the covenant that he has made with them. Moses is saying, what's the point of even going if you're not with us? Without the tabernacle in the center of camp, without his presence among them, there's no altar for incense, there's no laver for cleansing, there's no altar for sacrifice, ark for atonement. And there's no glory in Israel because God's glory is not there. He says, what's the point? Why would we even want the promised land if you're not going to be with us? Look at what God says. Verse 17, The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Finally, God seems to change his mind. God says, okay, I will be with your people. But notice why. Notice what it is that changes his mind. He says, you have found favor in my sight. And that's, again, singular. It says, Moses, you. I am pleased with you. And because I am pleased with you, this one man, I will then, I will thus extend my grace toward everyone else. Toward the people of Israel. You see, the people of Israel were saved by the merits of their mediator. It was not anything that they had done Certainly, they deserved punishment. But God says, I'm pleased with you, Moses. You're my prophet. You're the mediator. You're the go-between. He says, you have found favor in my sight. And the grace he gives Moses extends outward to the rest of the people. The people are saved by the merits of their mediator. Why would God operate this way? Why would one man be the difference? Well, perhaps it's to point us forward. Perhaps it's to show us deeper meaning and give us greater understanding in how we are saved in the same way. We're not saved by anything we have done. We're not saved because we repented better than anyone else. We're not saved because we're great and holy and righteous. We are saved and made holy because of the merits of our mediator. That is Christ, the Son of God. Christ is our go-between. He is our mediator, the same way Moses was the mediator for the people. Now, over the next, uh, over ne- next week, we're going to continue right here where we left off in the text. We're going to see what happens next. But for right now, I want us to pause and just consider this fact. That Moses being a type of Christ shows us just how special we, we have it, right? And how great we have it in our own mediator. And I know we read this uh, text pretty recently. We've talked about mediators pretty recently. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at this, this passage one more time. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Notice that Christ is that high priest, the mediator between us and God. And because we have this great high priest, this great mediator, we can draw near to the throne of God with confidence. Now that's a big difference between the people of Israel and us. Right? Even, with, even when Moses passed on his job as mediator to the high priests, there were always buffers in the way of the people of God being right there in the presence of him. Right? There were always some buffers. There, there was the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle. There was the holy place, the most holy place. There was the veil that separated that most holy place from all the other spots. Right? That veil was torn in two when Christ died on the cross. The buffer was taken away. Therefore, we can draw near the throne of God, not like the people of Israel, but more like Moses even. Notice how the text tells us when Moses went into this tent of meeting, he spoke to God face to face, like a friend. That's not speaking literally. It's not saying God has a a physical face like humans do. But it's saying that Moses was able to speak to God intimately, to to have a conversation with him, he was able to enter into God's presence without a buffer. At least, the same, not, not quite the buffer that the Israelites had. Next week we'll talk about him going into the full-on presence of God. And that's quite the story too. But notice how much better we have it under the great mediator. Under the great high priest. Moses was great our mediator's better. The people of Israel were saved because God found, found favor in Moses. Well, God found even more favor in the Son. When Christ, in Matthew chapter 3, was buried in the waters, when, when he was baptized, and he came up out of the water, it says that a voice from heaven spoke. It said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration goes up on the mountain. He's transformed before the, those three apostles' eyes. God says to him, and by the way, Moses is there too. Moses and Elijah, great, great callback to Moses the mediator. Anyway, in that moment, the father says, this is my son whom, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God, the father, found favor in our mediator. Same way, it's almost the exact, obviously it's a different language, but it's almost the exact same phrase used about Moses. It says, I have found favor with you. The same way, God has found favor with Christ. Christ is, let me put it this way. The only way that we have favor with God is because God the Father has favor with His Son. Has found favor with Him. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that the tent of meeting is no longer outside the camp. It's now inside us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul prays that out of his glorious riches, that being God, he may strengthen his readers with the power through his spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Christ dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. 
And we can communicate with God through prayer, face to face, very much the way Moses communicated with God, as a friend. I'll be frank, we don't often, I know I, don't feel worthy of that. There are many times in which I feel like I just, I, I, I'm not good enough to enter into His presence, to worship Him, to pray to Him. I'm, I'm burdened by my sin. I think that's probably true for a lot of us, right? That we realize we're not good enough. But it's in those moments I hope that all of us can recall Christ is, that because of Christ, God is pleased with us. It's not for anything we've done. It's not for how good we are. But about the greatness of our mediator. We are saved. We are cleansed. We are purified because of the merits of our mediator. And therefore, we can approach him. We can approach the throne of God with confidence, as Hebrews tells us. The lesson is yours. Like I said, next week, we're going to talk about where this story goes. We're going to see the covenant renewed. We're going to see several points about God's character. Mainly about why we cannot approach God without Christ. But in this moment, I simply want us to, to be grateful. To be grateful for the mediator we have, for the go-between. And if you're here this morning and you have not been saved by the blood of Christ, if you do not have Christ as your mediator, I hope you'll consider following him, putting your faith in him and trusting him this morning. Because you need him. If you're going to plug into God, you cannot, God cannot abide sin. But He is pleased with His Son. And that love, that grace can extend outward to you. Please come, as together we stand and sing.